You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza. And I'm Gwen Colasso. We're here today with Andras Riedelmeyer. Andras is the bibliographer for Islamic Art and Architecture at Harvard's Aga Khan program and also the Fine Arts Library. We're here to talk about the second career of sorts that Andras has had outside the walls of the Fine Arts Library. And it is truly a fascinating story. So Andras... You specialize academically on the history and the culture of the Balkans. We have many episodes on the Ottoman History Podcast about the Balkans. I'm sure both of you have heard one or two of them. Um, But you've also written more specifically about the Ottoman-era waqf monuments and institutions in especially the West Balkans, but also more broadly. And you've emphasized in your work that the Ottoman heritage is truly a part of the Balkan heritage. Can you give us some background on the scope of these institutions, perhaps before the 1990s and then even earlier before the 20th century itself? Yeah, the Balkans, or you can even put it more broadly, Southeast Europe, because Hmm. uh, the Ottoman Empire and the Ottoman influence extended beyond what we now think of as Balkans uh, all the way uh, to Poland and uh, southern Russia, the Ukraine. It has formed this region for more than 600 years. Um, And although the Ottoman Empire retreated uh, from the 18th century onward, the retreat was relatively recent in the Balkans themselves. Um, It wasn't really until the eve of World War I that the Balkan Wars drove the Ottoman Empire and many uh, Balkan Muslims out of the region. Mm -hmm. So even though the modern national histories are uh, constructed Mm -hmm. in opposition to this 600-year period, and you still have school books and uh, politicians talking about uh, the Turkish occupation as if it were the functional equivalent of the Nazis... That's quite a way to spin it. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, uh, something that comes in an alien lid mm-hmm. that is then lifted and the unsullied, the local essence comes mm-hmm. out again. Uh, in, in fact, all of these uh, groups of people, and we're talking not only nationalities, but religions, um, social groups, all of these groups were Ottomans. They were formed and transformed by the experience of, face it, 600 years is not a passing episode. Mm. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that uh, unlike other pre-modern empires, think of the Spanish Empire, uh, the Ottomans did not... uh, enforce religious uniformity. Uh, They did not strive to wipe out uh, local cultures and local languages. 
they tended instead to adapt to local conditions. And they brought many new factors in that didn't exist in the early medieval Balkans. For example, uh, cities. Mm. And that's where Waqf played a crucial role. Can you um, maybe give us some, for example, some details about a given town? What would be some of the monuments one would see there? Think about it this way. Unlike um, the feudal experience of Western Europe, uh, the Ottoman Empire really did not have a feudal class. Hmm. So people still had uh, the urge, obviously, to provide for their uh, progeny, their children, and to preserve wealth from being confiscated. And uh, this was a very real risk. If, if your faction at court uh, was squeezed out, confiscations were pretty much uh, part of the game. The one thing that was safe from being confiscated was anything that had been uh, deeded to God, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, if it is the property of God, then it is safe from being confiscated. And uh, a wakfia, a document that uh, sets the terms of such an endowment, could and usually did contain provisions on whom the uh, wakf could employ in various capacities. And there was no nepotism rule. So uh, the wakf administrator, a paid position, could very well be your widow, your son, uh, and uh, it could be passed down through the generations. As long as the charitable uh, goal of the wakf was fulfilled, uh, it also did something for your relatives and friends. Mm. How was this adapted by uh, locals in the area? And also, do we see types of cultural fusions coming out in, say, architectural features? Definitely. Um, First of all, on the one hand, uh, there were imperial waqf, meaning uh, the ruler members of the court and uh, of the uh, ruler's family, for example, wives and daughters played a big role as well. Um, would establish waqf in areas where things were needed to stimulate commerce because commerce brought taxes. Mm-hmm. And so how do you do that? Well, at river crossings, you build bridges. Uh-huh. Uh, so Sultan Suleiman endowed the great bridge at Mostar. Mm. And uh, a pupil of the great arch- court architect, Sinan, designed the bridge. Mm-hmm. Magnificent bridge, 30 meters uh, above the uh, river. And uh, it is said that he was so worried that the bridge would fall down <laughs> that when the keystone was to, to be put in, he prepared his winding cloth, uh, his shroud, and performed his last prayers. <laughs> oh my because uh, he knew that if the bridge fell, that would be the end of him. And instead, the bridge stood and stood for over 400 years Hmm. until it was destroyed in 1993. Right. And then rebuilt in 2004. 
then what else do you do to uh, uh, stimulate growth? Well, one thing you need is a caravanserai where merchants can bring their valuable goods, store them overnight safely behind big doors and guards, mm. and where they can stay with their animals and uh, so forth. Uh, so Bosnia was part of the overland route across the Balkans towards uh, Edirne and Istanbul and beyond. Then other ways in which a wakf could stimulate. Um, a wakf is not just a sum of money. Some were, and sometimes there were cash wakf which were used up. Uh, but more often, you buy shops, right. and the rent of the shops uh, provides for the school, for the mosque, for the orphanage, mm. for the soup kitchen. Mm-hmm. So it's really integrated into the whole societal fabric uh, right. of, a, of the area. And uh, one way in which the Ottoman Empire uh, became part of the local society and culture is you would have these tiny little towns hmm. where local boys would make good. So there's this town called Pochitel, south of Mosar. A young boy from Pochitel uh, was taken for the palace service. He eventually became governor of Egypt, the richest province wow. of the Ottoman Empire. <laughs> and he never forgot about his hometown. Right. And so, in quick succession, he built an imaret, a soup kitchen. He built uh, a madrasa, mm-hmm. and he built a mosque, wow. and named his mother the mutawalliya, the huh. administrator. So, really taking care of her in a, uh, in a but way. But think about it. Uh, you know, a tiny little town deep in the Balkans is now connected to Egypt. Exactly. And when you say selected for palace service, you mean through the Devshirme system? Uh, yes. Yeah. did mention the very tragic destruction of the Mostar Bridge. Um, perhaps we should now transition to talking about your very wide travels in the Balkans in the last two decades, documenting the destruction of not only bridges, but archives, libraries, masjids, tekes, and other cultural heritage sites during the wars in 1992 to 1995, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, and from 1998 to 1999 in Kosovo. Can you tell us a little more about the destruction? Okay, well, what I've been doing here at the Fine Arts Library, technically, since the 1980s, is uh, being an art documentation specialist. And um, within the walls of the library, that's a fairly passive thing. Uh, You get publications, you get photos, and you help people structure their research around that. This was something else. Um, You had 
in very quick succession um, the destruction of much of, of the cultural and built heritage of the Ottoman Balkans uh, through war, genocide, and ethnic cleansing. Mm. It was unprecedented in Europe in terms of the brutality and the uh, severity of the destruction uh, really not seen since World War II. Mm-hmm. The international community eventually uh, reacted by setting up a war crimes tribunal, but the war crimes tribunal was not set up to document what happened to culture. So you have this very paradoxical situation where People are singled out for persecution, for murder, for dispossession, for genocide, really, on the basis of their cultural characteristics. Hmm. And yet the law and uh, the courts disregard the fact that at the same time this is happening, uh, the culture that belongs to those people is being systematically destroyed. And so I felt somebody had to record this. Mm. And um, I looked around and nobody was doing it. And so through friends and contacts at UNESCO and then uh, at the War Crimes Tribunal itself, uh, I asked if I got a grant and went and um, Mm. recorded some of this, would you be interested in the data? And they said, yes. Wow. And so I found myself in the 90s, um, you know, going through a war zone. Oh, my goodness. Um, And doing pretty much what researchers do here. You get before pictures, after pictures. You document the changes. When did it happen? How did it happen? Initially, I hadn't thought of it in in this uh, sort of legal way. Uh, I thought, you know, this shouldn't be forgotten, so we should right. keep a record. Right. But it became very much applied art documentation. And so as we speak right now at The Hague, the last of the great trials is winding down. Mm. Um, General Ratko Mladic, who was the military commander of the Bosnian Serbs, is uh, nearing the end of his trial. And this week are the concluding statements. They were referring to my testimony two years ago. I was there Mm. testifying about this. Could you talk a little bit more about that experience and the challenge of actually presenting this information to a group of non-art historians and non-specialists? Yeah, no, that that was indeed a challenge because um, (laughs) the judges are intelligent men who have studied the law men and women who have studied the law, but the information that they have about the culture of this place is the information you are likely to have from your high school education, meaning very minimal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second, uh, as you've no doubt uh, experienced yourself, a lot of people are not trained to interpret plans, pictures. They're not visually literate. I had the hardest time at certain times. I had a before picture and an after picture, and they were not taken from the same angle. 
And it was very difficult to convince the judges that this is really the same building. Oh, wow. I wonder if today, though, with certain technological advances, you could do like a 360 view, perhaps, to capture the exact same uh, shot and angle. (laughs) Yeah, there were uh, other challenges as well. Typically, when you're doing academic research, Mm -hmm. you gather every single bit of of documentation, whatever has been written about something, uh, all the pictures you can get and so forth. And you try to make a story out of it. Mm-hmm. You might connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And you try to make it cohere. And you make your own judgments about what is reliable, what has to be taken with a grain of salt. And the fact is the judges don't want you to do that. They want to connect the dots themselves. Got it. And so when you present stuff, it's like all the separate strands of evidence kept strictly separate and leave the last word of the conclusion to them. Mm. So you had to completely recalibrate your way of presenting an argument. Yeah. Is one of the upshots of going and presenting this work in this legal forum uh, an increased pressure on the current governments at play in this region to fund uh, restoration projects like the one that you mentioned in 2004? Yeah, there is um, a politics. You know, everything has a political background. Um, you know, the the reason these things were built had to do with certain political purposes, obviously. Let me bring in at this point the uh, uh, idea is if you build something that is a great investment, whether it's your personal donation or a community project, um, you think twice about where you're going to put it, how it's going to look, uh, you know, what functions it will serve. And so the whole project of ethnic cleansing and uh, ethnic separation, apartheid, has to do with the uh, idea that people of different races, different religions, different ethnic backgrounds cannot live together and therefore the best thing to do is separate them violently if necessary. And yet in every town in the Balkans, um, Bosnia especially, uh, you find that in small towns and big towns uh, on the main square within, you know, easy sight of each other, you have the mosque, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the synagogue. They're all facing each other. Now, to a certain extent, that can be a contestation, you know. Hey, we can build something big and nice, too, not just you. On the other hand, if people really couldn't live together, they couldn't stand the sight of each other, would they really put the centers of their communal and religious life in such a way that every time they emerge from worship, they would have to see each other? I don't think so. It's a great point. That is something that uh, I I was able to convey to the judges, and it meant something to them. Mm. This also has to do with reconstruction. The the reason these uh, mosques or churches were destroyed was to keep the people away, Hmm. to send the message, you no longer belong here. Even if you're not religious, the fact that there's a minaret there means that your community has a place there, a history there. 
you know, even if only the only time you ever went there was to bury your grandmother. And so uh, removing it sends a huge message. When people after the war tried to come back, the first things they would re rebuild would not be their houses or their businesses. It would be the house of worship and the school. Wow, interesting. And uh, so in many of these places, there was a huge struggle. In Banja Luka, for example, there was a bloody riot when they tried to uh, lay the cornerstone to rebuild the mosque. Mm. The local Serb high school principals gave their students the day off to quote-unquote pro protest, and the public works department uh, uh, stockpiled rocks that they used to stone the people who had come to pray. Wow. And then things changed, uh, in part because uh, this had a very uh, powerful influence on international public opinion. Right. Uh, it, it doesn't do your cause much good to... Um, you know, stage a riot like that, and there were ambassadors and others present. Yeah. Uh, in part, uh, it's a quid pro quo. You know, there are other ways of pushing your presence. So places that had never had Orthodox churches suddenly had big ones. Huh. Mm -hmm. But they tried everything. I mean, uh, the 16th century mosque, the Ferhadiyya, they finally couldn't stop it from being rebuilt. And so they changed the urban plan. They were going to build a solid wall of high-rises around it so you wouldn't have to see it. And you visited Farhadiyya Mosque, right, as it was being rebuilt? It just reopened, you know, after, after uh, you know, two decades. And that was interesting, too. Um, I went in the early stages of Reconstruction, that article you read. Right. And uh, I talked to the architect, and he was very insistent that it be rebuilt the original way. Mm -hmm. uh, they managed to recover the stones, and for the stones that they were missing, they found the records in the Ottoman archives on where the quarries had been. Hmm. And luckily, there was still enough stone in the quarries to make up for the missing. And there came this tension. Uh, it's an earthquake zone. Mm -hmm. You can't use damaged material because there will be people praying in there. It's not a museum. Right. You know, how, how do you deal with that? Well, uh, the, initially, the local congregation, what little there was of it, um, you know, only a few thousand people returned. They were nervous that, you know, now we have permission to rebuild, but it may not last. So let's rebuild it as fast as possible before uh -huh. they change their mind. And so the architect said, look, these stones have heard the call to prayer for 500 years. Are you going to leave them at the bottom of the city dump? Oh, wow. And they said, of course not. Then he had to persuade them. They wanted every stone reused. And wow. he had to persuade them, listen, I, as a, I have a responsibility. People can't get hurt. We have to use new stones for the stones that are, are cracked. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, it's an interesting thing. It's not just symbolism. 
it's so many things. It's it's the the history, the community, uh, the uh, statement about its future, and eventually even the local government, which is run by a very unserved nationalists, contributed a modest amount towards the reconstruction. Wow. Uh, in part to show that, oh, we're not really barbarians, hmm. uh, but also because they calculated uh, people will come to see this. It will boost our economy. Right. So how do you think your work then also affects the study of this architecture in, in this area? Do you think that it perhaps opens a new way for art historians to consider their sources as not just, say, a study of uh, these monuments at one particular time, but to perhaps focus more on this transformative use of space and materials? I, I think uh, it's, the transformation is happening. Mm -hmm. And uh, in much of Southeast Europe, uh, you have a renewed emphasis on not just... Uh, you know, studying what uh, boosts the national ego, mm -hmm. but also the real history. Right. You know, exactly. what happened in those five, six hundred years. Some of it is, again, driven by uh, politics and money. For example, in Greece, Greece was the original example in the Balkans mm -hmm. of uh, ethnic cleansing. As soon as Greece became independent, the first thing they did is they drove out the Muslims. Yep. And in turn, uh, Turkish nationalists drove out the Orthodox. Uh, and, uh, you know, for many decades, really, in the 20th century, um, all the restoration projects went towards uh, monuments of antiquity and then of Byzantine. But since much of the money came from Brussels, from the European Union, eventually they ran out of Byzantine monuments to restore. <laughs> and the money was still there. You had also trained restorers, and you also had much more sensible people. Mm -hmm. Some of them trained here at Harvard. Right. And um, so they recovered basically the ignored centuries of history. Right. Mm. You know, which are, were not only the mosques and the teches, but also uh, the great Greek merchants who flourished during the Ottoman rule. Exactly. Um, and uh, some of these are now getting documented and restored. <laughs> but it's always political. Going back to some of your work, you've published on just the sheer numbers of documents that were lost and I believe have also participated in organizing scholars to join together and restore facsimiles and other microfilm copies that may still be found. Yeah. Could you tell us a little more about that work? Part of the uh, history of the era, you had this amassing of archival documents. For most of the Ottoman centuries, the state structures that produce archives didn't exist for these countries, you know. Uh, the, the, the independent Balkan countries uh, all arose in the 19th century, so they had no state archives that extended uh, 
further back. On the other hand, you had the Ottoman history of the uh, region over the centuries through invasions and earthquakes and uh, other calamities. Uh, a lot of that material was also lost. A vast amount of archival material has survived. And as true bureaucrats, the Ottomans uh, uh, produced many things in multiple copies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and... Of course. Uh, you know, some aga in, in uh, the, the provinces, uh, you know, went on vacation and he needed leave papers. These were deposited uh, in multiple copies in the capital, in the uh, lo local regional centers and so forth. So even though vast amounts of material have decayed, have, uh, have been lost, uh, there is a lot of material not just in Istanbul and Ankara, but in all of these uh, provinces. They hadn't been studied much except by uh, local scholars who had very specific, very local interests in mind, mm -hmm. you know, writing small-town histories, uh, family histories and the like. And it's only very recently that... Uh, international Ottoman scholarship has discovered local history. Um, you know, until really the last generation, there wasn't a single university in Turkey that taught Balkan languages. Mm. And most Ottomanists uh, mm. uh, in this country, too, feel lucky if they can manage Turkish and Ottoman. Uh, so you know, studying Bulgarian or Greek or, or Bosnian uh, is, is not something that uh, is a part of the standard equipment. And yet the material is there and it's a fascinating area. And that is part of, of the change in the field. I mean, just like I was describing uh, the change in art history. Right. Uh, similarly, in... Uh, uh, Ottoman history generally, uh, you know, it's no longer the central institutions. People are interested, you know, how did things really work in Sarajevo or Tunis or, uh, you know, other parts of the empire. Right. Uh, decentralizing, I guess, Istanbul and yeah. looking at all of these other very flourishing yeah. cultural centers. Mm -hmm. Also that locally, uh, there is now a mature class of scholars mm. uh, where, you know, let's take the Arab provinces, where um, under the uh, influence of colonialism, which saw the Ottoman period as the, uh, you know, the part we don't want to talk about, and then uh, local nationalists uh, who, again, much would much prefer to talk about uh, uh, you know the, uh, the Abbasids or the the glorious medieval Arab past. Now it's different. Uh, you have uh, you know Balkan or or Arab historians who have the local language, mm -hmm. but are also competent in Ottoman. Right. And uh, are often willing to collaborate with others. The <laughs> 
I just wanted to ask very briefly about uh, a project that you recently are working on concerning another political use of archives and manuscripts and that um, how collecting itself can sometimes perhaps unknowingly contribute to um, wars and also um, other strife uh, occurring in a nation. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on what you've been doing to uh, highlight that aspect of your work. Okay. Well, in addition to the um, destructive aspects of uh, ethnic cleansing, you know, the burning of libraries or the uh, blowing up of mosques, uh, people forget that war is motivated and driven to a large extent by the root of all evil, greed. Mm. And so in Bosnia, for example, some 1,500 mosques were destroyed uh, in a very short period, just four years. Mm-hmm. But time after time, I would come across references to the fact that before a mosque was destroyed, it would be thoroughly looted. Ooh. Mm. Uh, you know, we talk about waqf as it were, if it were this great institution, and it is, but uh, in addition to, you know, mosques, aqueducts, bridges, the simplest form of waqf is your grandmother dies and you donate a uh, kilim in her honor to exactly. the local mosque to be used as a prayer carpet. Mm -hmm. And I've seen pictures of Bosnian village mosques where you had piles of carpets, you know, five foot deep. Mm -hmm. And before that mosque got burned, uh, truckloads of, uh, of carpets would be taken out. And in my hometown of Budapest, which was the closest working airport during the war, Mm -hmm. um, German antique dealers would set up, uh, would buy apartments and set up shop there. Wow. You know, these things are untraceable, they're marketable. Yeah. And similarly, you find in places like Syria or Iraq today where um, the traffic in antiquities and not just, uh, you know, prehistoric figurines, but mm -hmm. Um, you know, things like Quran manuscripts uh, is in part providing a livelihood for uh, some of the locals who are have few scruples, but it's also, um, you know, part of the engine of war. Uh, the self-declared Islamic State uh, has set up a special bureau that takes a cut on the illegal export of antiquities. And these things show up quite regularly in the big auction houses. Hmm. Uh, and these are being bought by the major institutions as well? or Oh, yes. Okay, not just private collectors, wow. Yeah. Once it's been endowed in perpetuity, mm -hmm. there is no clean way that a waqf object can leave a waqf. Right. You know, so... Um, you know, pick up your next uh, auction catalog 
and it'll say this is a walk for kite bays or something. Uh, you know, how do you get here? Well, somebody stole it to begin with. <laughs> uh, that is is sort of the dirty secret, anyway, of the refined work of uh, refined world of art collectors and museums. Um, that very little separates them from the grave robbers, the looters, uh, the black marketeers. And, you know, there's big money involved, so nobody makes a fuss. Uh, I was in London a year ago. October is when the big auction houses hold their annual Islamic sales. And was amazed to see on offer at an auction while I was there uh, a big wakfiya scroll uh, from the Mamluk era that I knew because um, it was published. Mm. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and it had gone walking during the Arab Spring. Mm. <laughs> you know, there were riots in Tahrir Square, and wow. the Alkaf ministry uh, was unguarded, and somebody took it. And, you know, Do we a couple know of year, years later, it, it's in uh, London. Well, I wasn't the first one to notice it. I saw it on the blog of an Egyptian uh, lady architect, mm-hmm. and she made a big fuss about it, and the Egyptian government stepped in, and it was withdrawn from sale. Mm. Nice. But there are so many that aren't. Do we then have a responsibility as scholars or librarians, collectors, to really uh, scrutinize the sources and provenance of these objects before purchasing, before even perhaps uh, studying them for our own yeah. purposes? Yes, I mean, uh, think about it. We're we're now what sixty, seventy years after uh, the World War Two years, and uh, there are still people trying to track down artworks that uh, were stolen from uh, Jewish collectors mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. looted from synagogues and the like. Uh, this stuff is happening now. Uh, and, you know, everybody's involved to some degree. I mean, I I don't buy manuscripts because this is not a manuscript library, uh, but um, on a number of occasions, people have walked in here. Um, you know, a French UN diplomat come, came in with a big, fat 12th century volume from Afghanistan, and he claimed, that, oh, he just got it from an Afghan who... Uh, said it belonged to his family. Wakfiya. Yeah, hopefully. Um, you know, I, th- I think the, you can't stop this stuff, but you can uh, shame people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Anrash, for coming on the show. Thank you. You're welcome. We encourage our listeners who would like to know more about Andrash Riedelmeyer's work to... Check out the bibliography on our website that he has provided, as well as a few images of various monuments that we have had the pleasure to talk about today. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on the Ottoman History Podcast.